at some point in time there was data suggesting that too much vitamin D could be very toxic. We know it can be. When I speak to my parents, they're very hesitant about taking a vitamin D supplement, despite being of the age where, you know, they're at higher risk of deficiency, because my mum has in her mind that, you know, oh, it's a fat-soluble vitamin, it can be very easily toxic. But actually, we now have data to show that there's people who've taken huge amounts of supplements and have very high blood levels without reaching toxicity. So this extremes that you would need to go to to reach toxicity are actually probably way beyond what anyone would ever encounter. Welcome to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. Now on the 28th of October, 2021, a new survey commissioned by the British Nutrition Foundation revealed that almost half of British adults are not aware of the government's recommendation to consider taking a vitamin D supplement during the autumn and winter months. Vitamin D is essential for keeping our bones and our muscles healthy and also for supporting our immunity. Vitamin D seems to have been in many news headlines over the last two years, especially related to the COVID-19 pandemic. However, as we approach now into the winter months, I wanted to bring you this podcast around the importance of vitamin D. Because the National Diet and Nutrition Survey showed that one in six adults in the UK today have low levels of vitamin D in their blood. Vitamin D, as we know to date, has had huge research around bone health, but it's also had links with depression, our immune system and our day-to-day health. But why is it so important? What's the link to immunity as we go into these winter months? I aim to bring you in this podcast with Dr. Jenny McConey, who is one of the top immunologists in this country, everything you need to know regarding vitamin D. I have a very exciting announcement to make. If you haven't already heard, season six finale is going live and you can buy tickets today. They are selling fast, but we do have some left. And I really hope that you can be there to see the closing of this fantastic Live Well, Be Well season six. To join me in closing the season, I have the wonderful and insightful chartered psychologist, Kimberly Wilson, who will be speaking to us about nutrition and mental health. I had Kimberly in season one, and I'm thrilled that she's coming back to close the season six finale. Every time I invite Kimberly into a panel or into a seminar with the BY Collective, she always grips the room. So I couldn't think of anyone more brilliant than to help end the season finale. If you're interested in nutrition, you're interested in the links with mental health, and you want to know the latest research, or also just come along for a mince pie and a glass of wine, grab your tickets. They are only £15 from the BWAR Collective website. We are hosting it live at the Pavilion in Knightsbridge. And it's a gorgeous members club. We've got the rooftop terrace, but don't worry, we will be inside in the warm. We've got mince pies and we've got the BWAR Collective goodie bags on offer to you if you come. These are like gold dust. So make sure you grab your ticket on the BWAR Collective website for Thursday, the 2nd of December. Tell your friends, tell your loved ones, and we cannot wait to see you there.
Thank you to this week's sponsors of the Vitamin D episode, which are the natural health company that specialise in smart supplementation, Better You. Now, as a nutritionist, I do always advocate food is first. However, there are certain instances which you'll find out from listening to this podcast that you can't always get all of your vitamins from food. And one of these surrounding the winter months is vitamin D. And this is when supplementation is a recommended public health guideline. I absolutely love Better You and I have personally been using these guys for years. They have a fantastic range of vitamin D oral sprays that deliver nutrients through the soft tissues of your mouth, providing fast and effective support of vitamin D supplementation. Not everyone likes taking traditional capsules or tablets, so Better Use Oral Range is absolutely fantastic. I always advise to take it under the tongue and take it in the morning because it also is a hormone, so it can provide some energy. Now, their vitamin D oral sprays comes in a range of doses that can suit everyone's need and age. They also very cleverly have great tasting natural peppermint flavours as well. You know that I am all very passionate about sustainability and they do use all of their packaging, which is made from ocean waste plastic. So it is 100% recyclable. These two things are so important. Vitamin D has had huge links into helping support the immune system and you're going to hear this today. So for any of you looking for a good vitamin D supplement, I would highly recommend Better You. Now, currently, they have 20% off all of their vitamin D range. Now, to add to this fantastic offer, if you use the code BEWELL, B-E-W-E-L-L, you can also get free delivery. So what is not to love? And checking your vitamin D levels is really important because one in six of us are deficient in vitamin D. So, fantastically, they are also working in collaboration with Sandwell and West Birmingham Trust to offer you a complete vitamin D testing service, which can be completed from the comfort of your own home. So head to www.betteryou.com and you can buy your own vitamin D testing kit, as well as getting these fantastic offers from their oral vitamin D sprays. Don't forget to use the code BEWELL for free shipping. Jenna, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Actually, welcome back to Live Well, Be Well, let me say. Thanks for coming on today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. It's so nice to have you back. So for anyone who doesn't remember or hasn't listened to our first ever season of Live Well, Be Well, we recorded together. Yeah, I think it was like the fourth episode in season one, and now we're on season six. So that was in the height, I think, of the pandemic when everyone was freaking out around their immune system, and you were in high, high demand and still are, <laughs> as to deliver like the evidence-based facts around the immune system. And I learned a lot from, from that episode. So thank you for coming on today. Oh yeah, it's great to be back. <laughs> and how are you? How have you been? If yeah, I'm good. I'm sort of getting used to the new normal, whatever that might be, as we sort of approach winter. It looks quite different to how it did this time last year when we were going into a third lockdown in the UK, weren't we? 
I know, it's terrifying. Those restrictions, um, but yeah, everything's not not quite back to normal, but somewhat familiar. (laughs) And can you give all of my lovely listeners a bit of a rundown about kind of who you are, because you're obviously an immunologist, and that's quite... I don't feel like it's spoken about that much, actually. I mean, it has probably been more in the last year. But what do you do? Obviously, you work with the immune system. You've had a book published within the last year, which is fantastic, which I'd highly recommend. But I'd love for you to give a a short bio about what you do. Yeah, so as you said, I'm an immunologist, which is someone who sort of works with the immune system, studies everything about the immune system. And I think you're right. Like, we weren't really talked about that often until COVID came along and then now you probably can't pick up a newspaper without hearing an immunologist being quoted in the media about you know their opinion on the latest COVID study and I had just written a book that was set to be published just around the time that COVID hit in the UK so March 2020 so I wrote it before COVID but it's very relevant it was kind of what is your immune system and how can you take care of it to stay well for now and for you know the future sort of looking at the long-term health and it's just a subject I'm endlessly fascinated about is there's so much to learn and the last sort of almost two years with with COVID has been a fascinating time because we've seen immunologists all over the world collaborating bringing out research in this area helping piece together the, the puzzle of the pandemic which from my perspective has been great to learn a lot and also to see immunology kind of making it more into the mainstream, into people's consciousness. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it really is. I was going to say, I've worked with a few immunologists generally, but it was quite hard to find them until last year. And now all (laughs) of a sudden they're everywhere, which is amazing. And it's obviously such an important issue. And I do think there's so much we don't know about the immune system yet that we're kind of rediscovering and um, hopefully more funding is going into that area to help us discover more about immunity. And obviously there's a huge link with COVID. And another link that was with COVID, which we're going to talk about today is vitamin D. And I couldn't think of anyone kind of better to bring on to talk about vitamin D. One, because of the really interesting links with vitamin D in the immune system, but also because we are now approaching those kind of dark, cold winter nights. And obviously the public health recommendation is from October onwards that we're all meant to be taking a vitamin D supplement. And as I was researching this lovely topic last night you know the British Nutrition Foundation had just released a paper around vitamin D and you know one in six of us are deficient in vitamin D we have low levels and actually nearly half of Britons aren't aware of the government guidelines I feel like this podcast is coming at the most perfect time so hopefully people can share all this wealth of knowledge that you're about to give to everyone Those are um, some staggering statistics there that you mentioned. I think when I work in this field and I'm obviously engaged in the literature around things like vitamin D, it's sometimes easy to forget that so many people maybe just aren't aware of, you know, the the guidelines that we have here in the UK and how important this uh, nutrient is. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the thing. Sometimes when you work in a field and I'm exactly the same with nutrition, you kind of forget actually that so many people aren't aware and still talking about this is so fundamentally important to help spread the information, but also kind of understanding why. And I think that's the key kind of element here is like, why do we need vitamin D? So let's kind of start. So vitamin D is actually 
it's actually a hormone, isn't it? It's not actually a class as a vitamin. So could you talk a little about like the evolution of vitamin D? Like how do we gain vitamin D? Like how does it kind of make that hormonal reaction in our body? Where do we get it from? I think that's a great place to start. And, you know, it's a lot more complex, actually, a topic than probably people realise. As you said, it's it is a vitamin in the sense that if we're deficient, we might experience diseases of deficiency, such as rickets, but it's a hormone in the way it acts. And it's actually not a single compound, but a family of related nutrients. We call it a, a fat-soluble pre-pro hormone because it's sort of taken and activated in our body before we can use it and probably it's best known for its role in supporting calcium homeostasis in the body which is important for our bone health and we know that being deficient in vitamin d and we can maybe talk later on about what deficiency means in terms of your levels but it leads to rickets in children and Here in the UK, we probably don't see many kids suffering from rickets, which is a sort of bowing of the the legs because there's not enough calcium in the bones. In adults, it leads to something called osteomalacia, which is a softening of the bones. And again, it might not have overt symptoms, but you might have things like bone and muscle pain or, or weakness in your limbs. And actually, it's only quite recently that we've discovered it. It was discovered in the early 20th century. And at that time, there was a high prevalence of rickets. And around 90% of children in Northern Europe suffered from rickets, which I think is just like mind-blowing to think about. And then in the 1920s, the link was made that when we expose people to sunlight, this could treat rickets and reverse this disease of deficiency. And that's when they started to discover oh, there's a vitamin called vitamin D, which is a hormone, and it's made when our skin is exposed to sunlight. So specifically, it's the UVB rays in sunlight. And when it hits our skin, there's this photosynthetic reaction that happens, which I think sounds quite cool. That Well, we're basically like photosynthesizing like a plant. I know, like plants, <laughs> yeah. And there's a sort of precursor compound in our skin, which is a sort of form of cholesterol. And there's a reaction that happens with the UVB light that will make this sort of pro-hormone in the skin. Of course, this is going to be affected by how much exposure you get to sunlight. And obviously where we are in the UK, we're northern latitude. So it's generally speaking, it's said that in the UK, we can only get enough vitamin D from the sun between April and September. That's if you spend time outside and without loads of clothing and loads of sunscreen. So broadly speaking, if you have white skin, you only need about 10 minutes in the sun to get adequate amounts of uh, vitamin D. And if you have darker skin tones, this might be 20 to 30 minutes um, because the melanin uh, stops this process happening as effectively. And the sort of broad strokes, easy way to tell is is when you look at your your shadow. So if the sun is high in the sky and your shadow is shorter than your body, then it's enough to make this reaction happen in the skin. The amazing thing about this this skin reaction is that you can't overdose. Your body has these sort of homeostatic mechanisms in place. So if you spend the whole day out in the sun, on the beach, you know, or, or if you're on holiday, it's not like your body's just going crazy and producing too much vitamin D. Um, there's a, a sort of mechanism in place to stop that from happening. So 
that's kind of how we get our vitamin D. Um, we can get it from diet, and we can talk a little bit about sources of foods, but generally speaking, it's not considered that we get enough from diet to meet the needs. So this sort of skin reaction would be the main way, but obviously there may be reasons why you're not getting enough sun. As we go into end of September, October in the UK, we get less sunlight. We tend to wear more clothes when we go outside. We might huddle indoors more because it's cold. So we might not be getting enough from the sun. And there might be other people who are more predisposed to not getting enough sunlight because maybe through ill health they cannot go outside or the you know, shift workers, the types of jobs people are doing. Um, again, skin colour, even things like age, the older we get, the harder it is for our skin to make this reaction. And other things like the amount of body fat that you carry, because it's a fat-soluble hormone, so it can affect how much is sort of released into circulation that our body can use. Now, the vitamin D we make in our skin then has to be converted in the liver to another form and then again in the kidney to make the active form so it's kind of a complicated pathway so that means that anybody who has sort of diseases that affect the liver or the kidney they may also be higher risk of a vitamin d deficiency and i think because of this because it's been really in the spotlight with COVID and we can comment about the links with infection. The government guidelines in the UK, so Public Health England, say that we should all be supplementing with a daily dose of a minimum 10 micrograms a day. And it is really more important to have that slow and steady every day rather than saying, oh, I haven't taken my vitamin D for a month, so I'm just going to take a giant dose all in one go. We know from the science that that doesn't work. That's not an effective way to raise your vitamin D levels. So it is about putting your supplement somewhere in your house so that you can remember to take it every day, maybe next to the kettle so that when you wake in the morning and you're making tea. And it is a fat-soluble vitamin, so taking it with foods that contain a source of fat. Um, can help with that um, absorption. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the different forms because it is quite complicated and they do have complicated names. People may have seen if they're looking at supplement aisles you can get a vitamin D2 which is also called ergocalciferol or vitamin D3 which is also called cholecalciferol and the vitamin D3 is considered the more effective form. It's the form that your skin is making when it's exposed to um, sun but they're both inactive by themselves and they're not equal so we utilize vitamin D3 much better, about 50% better than vitamin D2. So if you are looking for a supplement, always opt for vitamin D3 form, not vitamin D2. And vitamin D2 is the form that is found in certain plant foods. It's also normally the form that's used for food fortification. So mushrooms, for example, are also photosynthesizing their vitamin <laughs> D from the sun and they make vitamin D2. So we can obtain very small amounts from our diet but our body is just not able to use it as well and vitamin d3 is also found in certain foods these are normally animal foods so they are oily fish liver egg yolk butter or you can get it from supplements so 
whether we take it from the sun or whether we take it from a supplement or from small amounts in our food, it needs to be activated in our body. And so there's these two sort of hydroxylation reactions that happen, one in the liver and then the second in the kidney. And that actually produces the active form called calcitriol, which is sometimes called vitamin D4. And that's the form that our body actually uses to do all the, all the jobs that it can do. And so this was only identified actually in the early 70s. So in terms of sort of time frame, it's it's really quite recent. And I guess that's what sort of hindered getting to a sort of consensus of what is enough vitamin D. And there's actually a lot of differences around the world about, you know, different authorities consider a deficiency. It's a really interesting topic, this actually. And there's a lot of people I've spoken to about the dosage at the moment and obviously from the the British obviously Nutrition Foundation releasing it saying one and six of us are deficient I think it's actually more terrifying there's much more harm to be done even though it's a fat soluble vitamin if you are deficient than if you are maybe not overdosing is probably the wrong word but like maybe taking a little bit too much because actually we know that the effects of not taking enough are so much more detrimental. And I think this is a really kind of important conversation that actually we want to make sure that everyone is at least supplementing with it because the risks of not taking it linked to so many different health disorders are quite high. Yes, exactly. And I think, I don't know if it's uh, at some point in time there was data suggesting that too much vitamin D could be very toxic. We know it can be. When I speak to my parents, they're very hesitant about taking a vitamin D supplement, despite being of the age where, you know, they're at higher risk of deficiency. Because my mum has in her mind that, you know, oh, it's a fat-soluble vitamin, it can be very easily toxic. But actually, we now have data to show that there's people who've taken huge amounts of supplements and have very high blood levels without reaching toxicity. So this extremes that you would need to go to to reach toxicity are actually probably way beyond what anyone would ever encounter. So if you follow the Public Health England or the NHS guidelines, you, you don't have any worries about vitamin D toxicity. And like you say, it's better to supplement as a kind of safety net than to not supplement because you worry about taking too much. Absolutely. I mean, it's when you just look at kind of the research, you know, 50% of Asians living in the UK are severely deficient in vitamin D. And a third of black Africans living in Britain have high, you have high levels of risk of deficiency as well, as well as kind of lower social economic groups and more risks. And people that maybe you know, we're much more aware of anti-aging now. So we're always being really aware of where you are, factor 50 on our face and on our body. And all of these are barriers to stopping us having absorption. And you mentioned some really key points there about obviously liver and renal disorders and your age and obviously your fat that you have on your body, but also even, you know, GI problems. So that can also really affect the absorption. So there's so many different things here that can also be affected in our absorption and you mentioned some really key parts within the food system that do have vitamin d in more vitamin d2 but they're such minuscule amounts that as a nutritionist saying food first is you know what we normally try to encourage but you just can't get it with vitamin d and so that's you know that's why it's so important to supplement because i always think it's it's food first except vitamin d that's like (laughs) the caveat (laughs) this is the thing if there's one kind of vitamin 
slash hormone that, you know, you can't, we're not going to eat 10 fillets of salmon in a day. Um, if you do, I mean, wow, that is, that is absolute <laughs> commitment. But, you know, it's just not really yeah. possible in our day-to-day lives. So we do need to supplement with it. But there's kind of two ways that I want to go with this, actually. You know, first, obviously, you spoke about food fortification and it does have vitamin d is in certain food fortification foods so maybe like your almond milks or your oat milks they're quite heavily in it and some cereals but do you think we need to be seeing more of it within our foods and maybe more of the vitamin d3 form than the vitamin d2 form Yes, I think that's an interesting point. There's always kind of two different arguments behind fortification. And I think these kind of public health strategies are are often, you know, these huge safety nets to try and make sure that we're reaching all populations. Because as you mentioned in the beginning, there's certain pockets of people in the UK who are completely unaware of the guidance that is out there around taking vitamin D supplementation. So by fortifying foods, we can hopefully ensure that they are not suffering from deficiency. But at the same time, I guess, mostly fortification is happening with vitamin D2, which is not as effective. I think it's a bit cheaper. Um, it's also less sort of robust than vitamin D3. So there's all sorts of other arguments of how we fortify foods in the best way and how stable that fortification is and which foods we should fortify it with. And I think it wouldn't perhaps replace um, supplementation or getting a little bit of sun every now and again. So I guess... If we talk about what's, I mean, the sort of endocrine society in the UK class sufficiency as 30 nanograms per mil or higher. And this is of the 25 hydroxy vitamin D. So this is the form of vitamin D3 that's been activated in our liver, but it's not the final active form, which is 125 dihydroxy vitamin D3. That is a hard one to say. I can let you say it so well. <laughs> I think this is why it gets really, it's hard for the general public to take all this in because it's like they have all these. It takes me back to biochemistry lessons of yeah. having to write it correctly all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And you can ask your GP to do a vitamin D test. You can also buy them commercially quite cheaply. So sufficiency is kind of 30 nanograms per mil, which I think is kind of on the right lower level. And then optimal is probably between 40 and 60 nanograms per mil. There was a study quite a while ago that showed that, you know, all cause mortality was lowest in people who were within 40 to 60 nanograms per mil of this 25-hydroxy vitamin D3. So you want to be in that range. But I also have to qualify that these have been designed based on bone health and prevention of diseases of deficiency like rickets. So in terms of the immune function, we're still learning that exactly what the right dose or level of vitamin D3 is for proper immune function. Generally, 20 to 30 nanograms per mil is insufficient and an overt deficiency would be less than 20 nanograms per mil. And it's also quite tricky because the one that we measure in the blood, this 25-hydroxy vitamin D, which is the, the, the version that's been hydroxylated in our liver, but it's not the final active form called calcitriol. This is a marker of the supply in our body, how much vitamin D is in supply that can be taken and made into the active form when it's needed. But it doesn't actually tell us 
how much of that active form your body is is making. So it's not the best marker in the world in a sense, but because this 25-hydroxy D3 has a half-life of several weeks, it's easier to do a blood test and measure that. Whereas the, the active form, the calcitriol, this end product of this whole biochemistry of vitamin D3 production, that only has a half-life of a few hours. So our body is making it always in the short term and using it for what it needs. So it's much harder to actually make. And in certain clinical cases, so people who maybe have extremely low vitamin D levels, you know, overt deficiency, kidney disease or osteomalacia, then there is a form that can be prescribed, which is a calcitriol, this end product, this active form of vitamin D, um, to correct it. But for the general public, if you don't have one of these health issues, then taking the vitamin D3 that you can buy in, in your local shop that sells supplements should be fine. And it has been shown to raise vitamin D levels in the general population. Yeah, so when we get to that, so I always recommend my patients to take vitamin D in the morning because it's a hormone, so it actually can energise you. But it's quite hard to notice, unless we're doing a blood test, you know, vitamin D deficiency signs. But there are a few markers that could indicate that you could be vitamin D deficient. And, you know, could we talk about them? Like, what are the certain things that might be signs that you could be vitamin D deficient? Yeah, I mean, I guess sort of mild osteomalacia is the sort of pain in the bones or weakness in the muscles. But again, because these are quite vague symptoms, they overlap with many other conditions, possibly increased susceptibility to infection. And I'm sure we can go on to speak more in depth about the role of vitamin D in the immune system. Over a lifetime of having vitamin D deficiency can increase your risk for things like osteoporosis. So a thing that you have been diagnosed with or your doctor has discussed with you, then definitely have that conversation about vitamin D and make sure that you are taking your supplement regularly. It's also a fat-soluble one, so it's important to take with a source of fat. You know, because it goes through this really complicated biochemistry to go from inactive form to then being activated 25-hydroxy-D3 in the liver to then the active calcitriol in the kidneys, it uses lots of other cofactors to have all these enzymatic reactions happening in our body. And one of the really important ones is magnesium. So it's kind of the limiting factor in determining how much active vitamin D our bodies can make. And it's been suggested that people who whose magnesium intake is quite high in their diet, they're less likely to have a vitamin D insufficiency. And we know from things like the diet surveys in the UK that magnesium is a mineral that there is quite a high level of deficiency across or low levels. 70% of us are deficient in magnesium. Yeah, 70%. And it's so important because you've mentioned so eloquently, you know, obviously how it goes through all of these stages of going into its active form and magnesium is one of the main cofactors to help convert it into its active form and you know you've mentioned that obviously it's fat soluble and some people can be afraid of using fats like olive oil and avocado so you know we really want to encourage you know if we look at the Mediterranean diet approach they do use lots of good you know polyunsaturated healthy fats, which is what we want to be adding in when we're having our vitamin D. But you mentioned magnesium and there's a couple of things that you mentioned that I'm going to kind of come back on, but also you see a lot now vitamin D and vitamin K. 
well, vitamin K2, let's say, not vitamin K, vitamin K2 is the one that it's normally combined with. Can you explain a little bit about why we're seeing vitamin D and vitamin K2 together? Yes, I mean, again, supplement manufacturers are obviously thinking about how our bodies are using these nutrients and trying to formulate in a way that gives the best opportunity for your body to use them. And vitamin K2 is, as far as I'm aware, it's involved in how our bodies use the vitamin D in terms of calcium uptake and bone health. So that's often why they're put together. Vitamin K2 has been shown to improve um, bone health and reduce things like fracture risk and osteoporosis later on in life. And we know that magnesium deficiency also has these links to negative impact bone health. So we combine these together, we're trying to give our bodies the best chance of using that vitamin D. And I think it's just important to remember that, you know, taking a supplement isn't just the end point in making that nutrient do its work in your body. It's, you know, always a symphony of different factors working together. Absolutely. K2 is quite an interesting one in that it's also dependent on things like the microbiome. There's different forms of it, different forms depending if you're getting it from plant or animal foods in your diet. So yeah, looking for a supplement that does contain K2 and magnesium is important. But if you're also having a good diet and getting these nutrients through diet, then it's not strictly necessary when you're taking a vitamin D supplement. Absolutely. I think that's just so important to add in there why we, you know, all of us always say within the nutrition field, it's so important to have a balanced diet because all of these things work in synergy together. So as you said, it's not about just isolating one vitamin or one nutrient or one mineral to make us feel, you know, that we're going to be this magic bullet. It's about making sure that we optimize all of these cofactors sufficiently. And, you know, we mentioned magnesium is, you know, we're at risk of being 70% deficient of it within our diets. And actually what we know as well from that same survey is that 25% are also deficient in vitamin K2 from our Western diets. So we're actually, you know, even though we're talking about this vitamin, we need to make sure that we are optimizing our overall diet to give us the best possible effect. And if we're not, then we need to make sure that we're combining these things together within our supplementation approach towards vitamin D. You also mentioned there as well about you know, calcium and obviously the vitamin K being a really good kind of signal molecule to say, actually, we're going to push this towards the bones. But vitamin D plays a really big part, doesn't it, in the absorption of phosphate and calcium. And so you've obviously mentioned there about osteomalacia and rickets in children. But as you mentioned, we're going to talk about the importance of vitamin D with immunity, but really where a lot of the research has been up to date, it's actually with bone health, isn't it? And the importance with it. Yeah. And I think that the standpoint of the general public who've obviously been following along with you know news headlines around covid and seeing vitamin d continually being mentioned but also probably you know seeing lots of experts debating over you know what we should be doing in terms of vitamin d can be quite confusing and really the reason is that you know it was only in the 70s that we started to realize that vitamin d didn't just give us healthy bones, but it's also linked to so many diseases that affect our immune system. So things like 
cancers, diabetes, autoimmune disease, heart disease, metabolic conditions, but also infectious diseases where our immune system needs to function at its best to be able to protect us from infections. And as I mentioned, you know, vitamin D goes through these complicated biochemistry pathways to become activated in our body. And for a long time, we thought that that happened first in the liver and then in the kidney. And then we started to look more detail and realize that immune cells express not only the vitamin D receptor on their surface, which means they can respond to vitamin D and lead to a reaction, changes in gene expression, changes in immune function. But these cells also express the enzymes, which means that they can take the precursor vitamin D in our bloodstream and convert it into the active form without having the kidney or the liver to help them. So they can make their own little pool of active vitamin D where they need it. And this was a big sign that, wait a minute, if immune cells have evolved to do this, it must mean that this nutrient is really important for their function. And then we started to look a bit more closely and found that, yes, it kind of plays a few unique roles in the immune system. So if you imagine all of the barriers to our body, like the airways, the gut, you know, these are sites where germs will try and get into our bodies. You know, we breathe in viruses, they're gonna try and penetrate through our lungs to cause an infection. And vitamin D plays a really important role in sort of fortifying those body barriers and making sure they're really robust, helping our bodies make these antimicrobial substances that line things like our airways and our gut that prevent these germs from trying to infect us. They also help what we call the innate immune system, which is our first line of defense. So as soon as we get a virus trying to infect us, the innate immune system jumps on it within minutes, raises the red flag, it starts the process of inflammation to try and contain that infection. So we know that it's very, very important to get on top of an infection very early on. But then it also has another role that comes in a bit later on, which is it regulates the whole immune response to that infection. And after this initial inflammatory response that happens, we have what we call the adaptive immune system coming in later. These are our T and B cells, the antibody producers, which are more specific and targeted, and they can really get start fighting that infection in a much more specific way. And what vitamin D does is it regulates that adaptive part of the immune response. It stops it from overshooting. Because as much as we want to turn on an immune response to fight an infection, we also want to regulate it and control it and turn it off again when it's not needed because it's fighting those infectious germs, trying to damage them, but it will inadvertently cause ourselves some damage, which is why we get these horrible symptoms when we're suffering from an infection. So vitamin D is really important for that early, you know, raising the alarm, getting on top of the infection early on. And then it also stops the immune system from overshooting, from going too far in terms of its firefighting activities. And it brings it down and regulates and sort of helps close the deal once we've got on top of the germ. And if we start to think about this in terms of COVID, we know that some people are sadly ending up in hospital because their immune system is overshooting and causing their own body's damage. And when we get damage in our lungs, it affects the function of our lungs, which is oxygen exchange. We can't breathe. We see, sadly, people in intensive care requiring ventilation and support for their respiratory system. So you can 
see that there could be that link between vitamin D and COVID severity. But that's where it starts to get a bit more muddy because, as you know, we need to really have the evidence. And this can only be done with really rigorous clinical studies that are carried out appropriately. It needs time. And we're only sort of almost two years into the pandemic. So it's early on in the whole trajectory of of understanding exactly how vitamin D is involved in this, because there's many other factors that play into severity of, of COVID. And there's another kind of confusing factor in that vitamin D is what we call an acute phase reactant, which means that When we have inflammation happening in our body, whether that's fighting an infection or because we have an inflammatory disease, it lowers the levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 in the blood and it raises the active form, the calcitriol. And this means that people might present with a deficiency, but that deficiency might just be a result of them having an inflammatory disease or suffering with a long-term infection. So that again, when it comes to measuring vitamin D levels, it's a bit muddy in terms of really understanding what that means. Do low levels of vitamin D mean that you're more likely to suffer from severe COVID or does having severe COVID cause a deficiency in vitamin D when you measure the blood levels? So we always have to think about the traffic could be flowing in both ways. And I think that's what's been quite challenging to unpick as the literature has been coming out. Absolutely. I think you made so many great points there about your immune system. And obviously, well, obviously, vitamin D helps in the first line of defense, as you said, with the innate. So if this is the reason maybe why people who are low in vitamin D do suffer more because they don't have that first line of defense of attack with their vitamin D receptors. Yes, it certainly could be. And I guess the challenge is picking out whether that's a clear reason opposed to other confounders because often the people with more severe COVID also have many underlying factors that could predispose them to more severe infection. So lower socioeconomic status, for example, certain types of jobs that might predispose them more severe disease, diet and lifestyle factors, obesity, you know, often the people with low vitamin D are also suffering with other issues that could predispose them. And so it's really hard to sort of separate that out. But I guess we can look at other infectious diseases before COVID. And there has been a lot of work done showing that people with levels of vitamin D lower than 30 nanograms per mil are more likely to have upper respiratory tract infections. So that's your colds and flus. And that was even after adjusting for other variables. There's also an association that people with low vitamin D tend to have more days off sick from work than those with sufficient vitamin D levels. But when we look at the trials of supplementing vitamin D, it hasn't always shown a clear and consistent against infection. And I think that's where we've reached a sort of point of confusion in the literature, because again, there's so many confounders in the populations that are studied. There's a really interesting clinical trial that's happening by um, someone called Professor Adrian Martineau at Queen Mary in London. It's called the Coronavit trial. And it's a randomized trial with over 6,000 participants. And it's looking to see if correcting vitamin D status will reduce the risk of COVID and of other respiratory infections. 
And we don't have the data for that yet, but this will be really informative because it's it's been randomized. It's got a huge number of participants. And Professor Martinu did a meta-analysis back in 2017 that showed that vitamin D works best against respiratory infections when it's given in daily doses. So rather than saying, oh, I haven't supplemented for weeks, I'm going to take a huge dose all in once. Actually, we know that doesn't help raise your vitamin D levels. It has to be this sort of consistent um, dosing that we need to keep the levels at a healthy uh, amount. I think that's so important because, I mean, even as I'm recording this, if I'm being honest, I'm I'm feeling under the weather. I've definitely got a cold and I'm sure many people can hear that when I'm speaking in my voice. But it's one of those things. I mean, I do take vitamin D every day from September. But this morning I got up and I was like, right, I need my vitamin C. I need, you know, <laughs> my turmeric. I need X, Y and Z. It did light on me that I was like, no, it's not just when you're ill, you should be taking these, you know, and it's the same with vitamin D. It's one of those things where, you know, you have to take it for a good amount of time to see, you know, good results. And I think that's the really important thing, isn't it? It's not just kind of a go-to when you're feeling under the weather. It's actually making sure that it's part of your lifestyle in these winter months. Exactly. I often think about that with the immune system. You know, I do a lot of writing for the media and stuff. And around winter, I always get asked about, you know, what should we take for the seasonal lurgy and vitamin C and zinc. And and I'm kind of like, well, it it really depends what you've been doing all year round. (laughs) Because it's the little consistent efforts that build the baseline that help, you know, when illness does strike. Because, you know, anybody who goes out in the world and interacts with people, you've got a chance of picking up something because germs are everywhere so completely and I think we do forget that we still get the average cold you know we still since the pandemic you know as soon as you get a cough you're thinking have I got COVID and actually you're like no no I've got the old-fashioned style cold (laughs) oh there we are and it comes back in yeah in a few years it'll be coughs colds and COVID season you know I know oh gosh and the flu season well I mean like talking about it you spoke about something within the immune system you know where it becomes overactive if we obviously don't have our vitamin d to regulate it which I find really interesting because I'm also really interested in autoimmune conditions and obviously that's a huge link obviously with what you do in immunology and the immune system and kind of breaking it down we spoke about this two years ago but obviously we don't want to boost our immune system. We don't want it to become overactive because that basically means that you suffer with an autoimmune condition. And a really interesting study obviously that came out quite recently actually was around the immune system with vitamin D and my favorite, which is omega-3. And it was a huge study actually. It was a randomized designed trial and it had 26,000 adults in it, which is actually a huge population group. And they found that after five years, so there we go, so the long-term supplementation with vitamin D, it was associated with the 22 reduction risk in confirmed autoimmune diseases. And five years of omega-3 supplementation as well was associated with an 18% reduction um, in autoimmune diseases. So I just thought that was such an interesting study to quote as well as talking about, you know, some people that suffer with an overactive immune system, which is autoimmune conditions, also quite beneficial for them, it seems as well. Yes, 
Exactly. And I, I think often that's something that's forgotten about in the immune system. We all hear about boosting it and, you know, we want to have this really fired up immune system. But actually, half of the components of your immune system are designed to turn the other half off because you don't want it switched on all the time. You only want it switched on when necessary in that short term acute phase of fighting an infection. And then you want to switch it off again. And we know that things like autoimmune diseases have dramatically risen over the last sort of 50, 60 years. And we know that autoimmune diseases have some sort of defect in how their immune system is regulated. Because now we know that vitamin D plays such an important role process, we start to see lots of associations between vitamin D and autoimmune disease risk. So although autoimmune diseases are multifactorial, there's many genetic predisposed to it, vitamin D is certainly a piece in the pie. And again, it's one of those things that it's easy to supplement with. It's fairly cheap. And we do have evidence that it can correct deficiencies. So again, something that if you have autoimmune disease in your family or you suffer with an autoimmune disease, definitely talk to your doctor about supplementing or getting your vitamin D levels checked. I think it's just fascinating. There's a lot of data as well. You mentioned omega-3, which is one of my favorite nutrients too. <laughs> and I actually take a vitamin D supplement that is combined with omega-3. I was really oh, pleased wow. when I found that because it's That's two of my favorite things. Yeah. It's like somebody had a good idea to put those together because it's a fat, it's a healthy fat as well. Yeah, I just think that with autoimmune diseases, there's actually growing evidence on the role of omega-3s as being beneficial. The current nice guidelines in the UK are that people with autoimmune diseases should follow a Mediterranean style diet because that pattern tends to be rich in things like oily fish, which are a source of omega-3. But I'm hoping that one day that we have enough evidence that omega-3s can be something that we give to people with autoimmune diseases and hopefully see a clinical um, benefit. And I think that the, the evidence is definitely mounting there. Yeah, I find it so interesting. I honestly... I mean, I started studying nutrition and my main focus was omega-3 and it's been like that ever since. I just think, you know, we all should be, it's very hard in the ethical sense, which we obviously is a different conversation. So many of us kind of need to make sure that we're gaining enough essential fatty acids because as we know, we can't make them in our bodies. We can't synthesize them. So we've got to gain them from our diet. So kind of going on to looking at vitamin D as a whole. So people's kind of take home from this is how much dosage should they be looking at when they're going into a store and they're thinking, right, I'm going to go now buy a D3 supplement. What should I be looking for? So what would you say, what would you advise that they go into the shop and if they're looking at supplements, what should they be gearing towards? Obviously, it depends on people's resource and how much they have available to spend because supplements can vary quite widely. I would recommend a D3 version over the D2 And I would also consider your overall diet and whether something that contains also magnesium and K2 or a separate magnesium K2 supplement might be something that works for you. I think that it's spread the word, you know, if this is something you've heard of, you take your vitamin D every day and you're aware of the guidance in the UK, brilliant. 
but you may have friends and family members who are not aware and I think that's where it's really important to get that out I was really shocked when I was talking to my mum and she was like no I'm not taking any supplements she's very anti-taking anything I just get everything from my diet and I had to have this big conversation with her (laughs) well that's good that's how it starts is having these conversations my poor parents don't even get to have a conversation they just get it put in front of them and (laughs) take it (laughs) that's maybe why she's done should send them some supplements yeah Um, well I used to do that to my granny last year before she suddenly passed I used to literally send her packages of vitamin d (laughs) because I found it so important yeah you know in terms of covid we're still kind of in a situation of equipoise so we don't have a clear picture on whether it will reduce severity, whether it can be used to treat severe COVID. I would imagine that if people are hospitalized with severe COVID and then you start vitamin D treatment, you may not get the effect quick enough because they're in that critical state. Yes. I do think there's there's a school of thought that if there's a fighting chance that vitamin D supplementation will help against severe COVID, there's little harm in taking it because of we're in this public health situation and because it's linked to so many other health situations from autoimmune disease, bone health, and also, you know, other... All cause mortality, as we saw in a study that came out yeah. four days ago, which actually, you know, maybe we should cite, but it was published in The Lancet. And I think, you know, I sent that to you, didn't I, last night? Because I was reading about it and it, you know, it showed that all-cause mortality was increased by 30% in people with low vitamin D levels. I mean, there's just so much amounting evidence that actually if you're deficient, the risks are so high in so many areas that we want to make sure that as we should be kind of tackling our health is more preventative ways. And this is a really fantastic step in working in the preventative side of protecting your health. Interestingly, there's been studies looking where the free vitamin D supplements were supplied to frontline workers. And actually, many people turned this down on the grounds that they didn't think the evidence base was strong enough. So it does get very complicated in public health when when we have situations like this. And I just think that, you know, it's a mistake to assume that vitamin D is going to be the cure for all disease and poor health, just because it has these really broad roles across our immune system, our general health, our bone health because we do have to consider other aspects of our diet and lifestyle how we live our lives and certain populations within our communities who may be more at risk for other reasons not just vitamin d but doesn't negate the fact that restoring low vitamin d levels to something that's considered in the healthy range can have great health benefits and it's an investment in our health for the future so yeah it's kind of something that you know we both feel quite passionate about obviously it's not just about popping that supplement every day but it is a really good addition to take care of your health nhs recommends 10 micrograms per day and you can make sure you just follow what is advised on whatever supplement you buy so that you can um, make sure that taking a dose that's suitable and talk to your doctor if you're really worried about you or a family or friend who might be deficient or extremely deficient. The last question that I obviously really would love to ask you is Jenna how do you live well and be well and I'm wondering if it's going to be different to your answer on on season one. (laughs) That's a really good point Uh, (laughs) I don't remember what I said but you know okay as someone who's spent 
a lot of time researching, you know, diet, lifestyle, how it intersects with our immune system, all of that. I really feel like the one thing that stands out is consistency across all areas. It's the little things that you do across all aspects of your diet and lifestyle consistently. That means that, you know, you can have a big weekend blowout. You can have those days where you just don't eat well or you do, you know, things that are not supporting your health. And it doesn't matter because you've got that really strong, consistent baseline. So that's that's what I go with. And it's something I started in January 2021 was a sort of self-compassion practice because I've been reading scientific literature around self-compassion and the effects on the immune system, like measurable changes in immune cell function from people who were taught self-compassion techniques. And I was just like, God, you know, I'm one of these people. I can be so hard on myself and nothing good comes from, you know, feeling guilty or shameful or down on yourself. It's not a good motivator for life. So I really tried to kind of build that in. And it's, you know, whenever I have those bad days, I'm like, now is not the time to be down on yourself. Now is the time to show yourself some compassion. Like the reason that you're maybe not doing the behaviors that are supporting your health is because you're stressed, because life's thrown something at you, because there's a lot on, because, you know, or it's just one of those low points. And it's really helpful. So I would really recommend to, to anyone, don't don't give yourself huge unachievable goals, just little, small, consistent things you can do every day. And be kind, be kind to yourself. It's the That's- best thing. That has literally followed on from our last week's episode because we <laughs> talked about healthy habits and unachievable oh, goals. And yeah. it's so true because self-compassion, you know, even talking about the vitamin D in the context, and you mentioned it before, it's it's one element, isn't it? You know, and actually, yeah, you could be taking vitamin D every day, but if you're hard on yourself and you're stressed and you're not sleeping, it's not going to be effective. And it's this Swiss cheese model, basically, where you've got kind of, you know, all these different points of entry and things to hold this, the cheese together. And yes, vitamin D is one of them. And so is self-compassion. What a great way to end the episode. Oh, <laughs> Thank you so much, Jenna, for coming on. And, you know, I, I know so many people are going to want to find out more, look at your book. Could you give some information on your Instagram page, your website, where people can find you? Yeah, I mean, I'm most active on Instagram. So that's just my name. It's Dr. DR underscore Jenna underscore Machoki, which is M-A-C-C-I-O-C-H-I. And my website is just my name. And if you search my name on Google, everything should pop up. But I have a book, which I have here, my little uh, sticky notes. I still use it as a (laughs) reference point called Immunity, the Science of Staying Well, which is kind of, yeah, all of the things I'm passionate about, diet, lifestyle, exploring the immune system and, and trying to bring it alive for people in a way that that it's come alive for me no it's been, I read it after our very first podcast episode and it's fantastic so I'd highly highly recommend it and I will pop all of that into the show notes for anyone who hasn't managed to find a pen and write it down so thank you so much for coming on and I know you've got an incredibly busy day so I hope you manage to find some you time for self-compassion <laughs> during it <laughs> yeah likewise lovely to chat to you today Sarah take care Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. I hope you found all that information regarding vitamin D really, really helpful. Do please check out our sponsors, Better You, for your vitamin D supplement. 
All of the information for them are in the show notes. They have a huge range of vitamin D supplements available to you. And if you haven't yet booked your ticket for our podcast live season finale, head to the BY Collective website and that will be our closing episode of this season. Until then, I hope that you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.